Good morning. We're continuing our uh, study in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 35. If you want to follow along with me, open your Bibles or read the words as they appear on the screen now. It says this, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sickness and evil spirits and gave sight to the many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is, is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on the account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no greater than John, yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' word, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. Jesus went on to say, to what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. Thank you, Zoe. Let's pray. Father God, as we come round to your word now, we, as we have already prayed, long to hear your voice. We pray that you'll speak to each and every one of us. Lord, I want to pray in particular this morning for who this message is going to be really poignant. Lord, may faith arise in our hearts. May we once again be encouraged to walk closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember those times as a child where maybe you would go out into the streets and you'd go and play with your friends, and as you were leaving your house, your mum might call out something like, if you're going out to play, make sure that you play fair. Equally, I wonder if there were other times in your childhood where something would happen which would seemingly be unfair. Maybe you were 
at the dinner table and your brother or your sister got a bigger portion of dessert than you. And you saw this and you said, well, that is not fair. And the response that you got from your mum was, well, life is not fair. When our parents made contradictory remarks and contradictory statements like that, were they being inconsistent in what they were saying? No, I don't think they were, because you see, live for any amount of time and you will soon realise that life is not fair. Some people, they seem to have it really, really easy all the way through their life, don't they? They seem to live a life of luxury. They seem to have carefree, stress-free goings-on. And then at the end of their life, they die a seemingly painless death. Whereas other people, they spend their life in constant struggle, suffering injustice after injustice after injustice, hurt after hurt after hurt, pain after pain after pain. And we look at life at times, and it just doesn't seem right. The reality of the situation is that at some point in our life, each and every one of us will probably fall upon hard times and tough times. And it's at those points in our life, isn't it? Those points where we hit rock bottom. Those points in our life where things don't seem fair. Those points in our life where it just doesn't go the way we anticipated things going, that we are tempted to ask the question, God, where are you in my situation? Why haven't you done something to alleviate my pain? Why are my prayers seemingly going unanswered? God, do you really love me? We can find ourselves, can't we, at times like that where we are really struggling and life is really hard and it feels like everything is going against us. We can find ourselves in those moments beginning to doubt God at times, can't we? And even worse than that at times, we may even fall into the trap of beginning to question, am I even a Christian? Do I really believe what I'm talking about? Is this something that I really hold on to? I wonder if there's anyone in the last 12 months that is with us this morning that has found themselves questioning their faith. If I haven't questioned my faith over the last 12 months, I can certainly stand here today and say at times there have been times where I've questioned what I do, what I do. Why do I continue doing the things that I'm doing when things feel so hard and things feel like a constant struggle and a constant battle? And if you found yourself doubting at some points in your life today, if you found yourself questioning your faith, if you found yourself struggling with the things of God, let me tell you something today. You're in good company today. Because today what we see is a man called John the Baptist, the one who we spoke about a few weeks ago, who baptised Jesus, the one who we read in the beginning of the book of Luke, that before he was even born was filled with the Holy Spirit, the one who had this uncompromising, sold out faith in God. We find him in prison, we find him alone, and we find him doubting. So much so that he has to send a message to Jesus and ask, are you really the promised Messiah? Are you really the one that we've been waiting for, or should we look for another? Remember, this is the same guy that if we were to look at the book of John together, when he first sees Jesus, is the one who stands there and boldly proclaims, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin 
of the world. This is the one who baptized Jesus and then heard the audible voice of God speak and say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And after experiencing all of that, he's still doubting Jesus. Are you the one, Jesus? Or should we look and should we wait for another? How can someone who have such seemingly strong, rock-like faith, go from that to finding himself doubting Jesus. You know, we can learn a lot from this man today and his experiences, because if we are being truly, truly honest to ourselves, there have been times in our life and our Christian walk and our Christian journey where we have all been in the position that John the Baptist was in this day. We might not have been in prison, but we've certainly asked the question, Jesus, are you the one that I'd hoped for or should I look for another? And the first thing that I want you to see today as we open up this passage of scripture together is this, God does not work to our expectations. Let me say that again. God does not work to our expectations. Verse 18 of what we've read together today says, John's disciples told him all about these things. John's disciples were visiting John in prison. He was locked up and he was locked up because what he did was he challenged the marriage of the king because the marriage that he was entering into was to a woman who was once his sister-in-law. So John the Baptist stands up and challenges this and as a result finds himself ending up languishing in prison. And it's quite possible that when we read this in John uh, about John in verse 18 that his disciples brought news of everything that was going on, it's quite possible that they brought him news of all the miracles that Jesus was currently doing at that time. And the latest miracle in particular, which he had performed, which we would read in verse 11 of this chapter, where Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. Can you imagine what must have been going through John's mind when he hears things like this? If Jesus can raise a person from the dead, why on earth am I languishing here in prison? I baptised Jesus. Surely it's not God's will for me to suffer in this way. Did Jesus have the power to release John the Baptist from prison? Of course he did. You know, John wasn't the only follower that found himself locked up for the sake of the gospel Peter, we read about in the book of Acts, found himself languishing in prison because he preached the gospel and was thrown into jail. And what happened? The church prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and he was miraculously released. Hallelujah, what joy there must have been that day. Our God is an awesome God, he does miracles. But for John... There was no miraculous release. His story did not have a happy ending. His story ended up with him losing his head. You know, this doesn't seem fair. Why does God act differently in similar situations? There have been a number of times in my life where I've looked at a situation and I've thought, God, this is how you should act right now. This is what you should do in order to make this situation 
better. This is what should happen and everything will be all right. Just do it this way, God, and we'll all be happy. And then God doesn't. I remember a time at college, actually, when I was at Bible college. One of my best friends at Bible college was a lady called Anne. Anne was in her late 50s and she got through the kind of ministerial recognition process at the very last point that she could get through in, in terms of age, in terms of a time and ability to study in order to have a, a ministerial career after it. She knew that she wasn't going to have a long ministerial career. But let me tell you, this woman was so full of the Holy Spirit that the impact that she was having in such a short space of time was phenomenal. We both had very, very similar churches that we started out at. Both churches were, from a physical point of view, on their last legs. They were down to the last few people, and in both situations, God moved, the Holy Spirit moved, and the churches began to grow. And we got on like a house on fire in our college days because we would bounce ideas off each other, we would talk about various situations that we were facing in our various different church contexts, and I had to be at Bristol Baptist College at 8.30 every Wednesday morning, which was an early start for me in those days, living in Honiton. I had to get up quite early to make sure I was there. But so strong was our friendship, I would get up an hour earlier just to get there to college that much earlier than I had to in order to grab a coffee with this lady so we could talk about the things which were going on in our situations. And we remained good friends after our college days too. And she would say things to me like, uh, Luke, I've got about 10 years when it comes to ministry. And after I finish, I'm going to come to your church and I'm going to be that batty old woman who sits at the back, that charismatic old woman who shouts hallelujah every five minutes. And like I said, we got on very well. And after college, we continued to get on well and continue to stay in touch. And then about 18 months later, after college had finished, I got a text from her one day and she said, Luke, you know that I've been getting a few headaches recently. I've just been for an MRI scan and found out that I've got a brain tumour. She said, but don't worry. It's going to be all right. I'm not finished yet. God's got more work for me to do at the moment, and I'm believing for a miracle. She went downhill very, very rapidly, and I was gutted for her. And like a lot of Christians would have said to her at the time, I said, I'm praying for you. But her response was, don't worry, there's going to be a miracle. I'm not finished yet. God's got more for me to do. And, you know, looking back on some of our last conversations that we had uh, for, for this sermon today, I look back on some of those. And even in the last few weeks of her life, she was still saying, God's going to perform a miracle. It's going to be okay. I'm not finished yet. And, you know, I remember the day that she died because we had an early morning prayer meeting at my church at the time. We would have one every single Friday. A few of us would get up at six o'clock and we would come together to pray. And as I was in the church building this particular morning, a guy comes into the church who's part of our church and he's hobbling. And he says, I've hurt my knee. I hurt it playing tennis. I'm really struggling to walk on my knee. So I offered to pray for him. And I laid a hand on this man's knee that day, and I just prayed, Jesus, will you heal this man? Will you heal this knee in your holy name? And as I prayed for this man, I felt his knee physically pop as I prayed. And God healed it. He could move it. He could walk. He was pain-free from that moment on. But later that day, 
I got a message to say that my friend had died. And I couldn't help but feel slightly angry in that moment. God, I've been praying for this woman. Loads of Christians have been praying for this woman. And yet she died, but you healed a knee? A knee which would probably have got better on its own in a couple of days' time if he had just had a little bit of rest. Why? I wish I could stand here today and tell you the reasons why. But the truth is, I don't know. To me, it still makes sense that God should have allowed my friend to live and to heal her and to allow this guy with his dodgy knee to get better with a couple of days rest on his own. But you know, God doesn't always work in the ways that we expect him to work. When we pray, it's good and it's right for us to pray for miracles. The God that we worship, the God that we serve, is a God of miracles. And let me tell you something now, church, this morning. If you come to me because you have a serious illness or a serious situation that only God can do something about, the very first thing that I am going to offer to do for you is to pray in Jesus' name for a miracle. Because the God that we worship is a way maker. The God that we worship is a miracle worker. The God that we worship is a light in the darkness and a promise keeper. But we need to understand that prayer is not about twisting the arm of God to get what we think should happen. But prayer is about surrendering our will to him and saying, your kingdom come, your will be done. As Jesus did, Lord, if there's a way that this cup can pass me by, let it happen. But not my will, but your will be done. We see it all the time in Scripture, don't we? We see it with the Apostle Paul. We read that Paul had this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. It could have been an illness. It could have just been a really annoying person who was persecuting him and jabbing him every time he tried to go about his ministry. But whatever it was, Paul prayed on three occasions, God, take this away from me, please. And the response of God? No. My grace is sufficient for you. I wonder where you have been desperate for God to move in your life in a certain way, but what God actually wants to teach you today is that his grace is enough for you. We have a friend who lives in London who had a child who was born with severe autism, like life-changing autism. And I remember my friend saying to me one day, you know, for years, for years, We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed for God to change our child, that God would make this child better, that they would be healthy in every single way. But in the process, God changed us. Where do you need to surrender today, I wonder, in order for God to change you? And this is why, in moments of doubt, in moments of struggle, prayer is key. Because it's in praying that we are reminded that we are not in control. It's in prayer that we keep close to the one who is. It's in prayer that we come to God and we say, God, this is what I need. And it's in prayer where God reminds us, I am all you need. God works in ways that we don't understand. 
That's the first thing that I want us to see from this scripture today. The second thing that I want us to grasp today is that doubt is not a sin. You know, there is a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand something. We cannot understand why God is doing it. So we doubt. Whereas unbelief is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God. We refuse to believe his word. We refuse to take what God says seriously and what God asks. You know, many of the Bible heroes had times of doubt. Moses was ready to give up on one occasion. We see the same in the story of Elijah, don't we, where he sees these amazing things happen, where he calls down fire on a sacrifice on Mount Carmel, and then flip over the page, and what do we see? He's running for his life. The Psalms, they're littered with doubt. They're littered with questions. God, where are you? Why are my enemies prospering? Why am I in despair? How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Max Lucado describes John's feelings in this way. John had never known doubt. Hunger, yes. Loneliness, often. But doubt, never. Only raw conviction, ruthless pronouncements and rugged truth. Such was John the Baptist. Conviction as fierce as the desert sun. Until now. Now the sun was blocked. Now his courage wanes. Now the clouds come. And now as he faces death, he doesn't raise his fist in victory. He only raises a question. His final act is not a proclamation of courage, but a proclamation of confession and confusion. Find out if Jesus is the Son of God or not. The forerunner of the Messiah is afraid of failure. Find out if I've told the truth. Find out if I've sent people to the right Messiah. Find out if I've been right or if I've been duped. Doubt is not the opposite to faith. Unbelief is the opposite to faith. The truth is you can still have a strong, strong faith in Jesus and still have doubts. And you know what? God doesn't condemn us when we question him. Just as Jesus doesn't condemn John here for questioning him. I wonder today, are you struggling with doubt and uncertainty Don't feel condemnation for those feelings. Rather today, take them to God. His shoulders are big enough to carry even your biggest of doubts and confusion. The Bible tells us, cast all of your cares upon him for he cares for you. Jesus doesn't condemn John. Instead, what Jesus does is he reminds John. And the remedy for doubt, point number three today, the remedy for doubt is to focus once again on what God has done. Jesus told John's disciples to go back to John and to report what they had seen and heard, that the blind received their sight, that the lame walk, that those who had leprosy were being cleansed, and the deaf hear, that the dead were raised, and the good news was being proclaimed. You see, 
Even though things weren't happening in the way that John thought they should or hoped that they would, Jesus sends a message back to John, reminding him of what he is doing and points to the fact that John's faith in Jesus was never misplaced. Jesus again answers here and he picks up on many illustrations which are from the book of Isaiah about what would happen when the Messiah comes. He says the blind are receiving their sight, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised. They're all mentioned here from those prophecies of old. What Jesus is saying to John is remember the faith which you have clung to all of these years up until this point and look through those eyes at what is going on right now. You know, when we face times of doubt in our life, the way we prevent them from turning to cold-hearted unbelief is to remember what God has done in the past. A wiser man than me once said, never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. The key to overcoming doubt is to look back on the heroes of faith in Scripture, to see how God helped them to overcome their doubt. The key is to look back at the cross of Calvary, where God's faithfulness to us reached its climax. He took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserved. The key to overcoming doubt in your own life is to remember what God has done in your own life. You know, hindsight is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When we're in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our pain, sometimes we fail to see the wood for the trees. We fail to see what God is doing and how he is working. And sometimes it's only when we're through it and we look back that we see God was there all along and that he was faithful every step of the way. You know, that's certainly been true for my life. There have been some tough times. There have been times where I've been in the thick of struggle and the thick of doubt, and it's left me wondering, God, what are you doing right now? But when I'm through it and I look back, I see how God's hand has been leading and guiding me. You know, I've been a Christian now for over 20 years. And even after seeing God move in some of the most powerful ways in my life, there have still been times of doubt. The key is to focus on God's faithfulness and not the present struggles. Because by doing that, our doubt gets replaced with hope. Because we're reminded that he has always been faithful to his promises. And therefore, we can have confidence going forward. Where do you need to look back today? Where do you need to be reminded of God's faithfulness? You know, I believe this message is for for all of us today, but for specific individuals as well who are really struggling and who are really doubting today. Hear this today. God doesn't move in the way that we always expect. The, The doubt that we have is not a sin. And if we want to overcome our doubts, we need to look back at what Jesus has done. Finally, I want to tell you today that the doubts that we have as we walk along our Christian faith and our Christian journey do do not negate us from ministry. You know, it's easy, isn't it, to fall into the trap of thinking when we go through significant times of doubt and struggle, thinking, well, that's it. God can't use me. I'm done. 
that I need to just step back for a while. I need to get my head straight because I can't serve God when I'm feeling like this, when everything seems to be all over the place. It's easy to think that our doubts in God and his faithfulness disqualifies us from his blessings. But what did Jesus tell the crowd here about John the Baptist? Verse 28, I tell you that among those born of a woman, there is none greater than John. People have debated through the centuries, haven't they? Who is the greatest person who has ever lived? Jesus gives us the answer here. Apart from him, among those born of a woman, there has never been a greater person than John the Baptist. And notice something today. This was said about John the Baptist after he doubted. After John had sent messengers to Jesus to say, are you really the one or should we look for another? John's doubt did not disqualify him from ministry and neither does yours. We're all weak. We're all fragile human beings, prone to doubt, prone to sin. Paul, in fact, writes in the book of 2 Corinthians that we're all like jars of clay, weak, fragile, prone to breaking. But the amazing thing is about that picture is that despite our flaws, despite our weakness, despite our failures, God puts his Holy Spirit, his treasure within us. He comes to live within us and nothing can change that. We read in Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from God's love, even when we doubt. God does not disown you or discard you in times where you wobble. But like a good father, he picks you up and he says, come on, let's go again. The truth is that every single Christian goes through times of doubt. Whether you've been a Christian for six days or 60 years, circumstances will knock your faith. And let me tell you, any Christian who tells you that they've never doubted is a liar. If the one who Jesus describes as the greatest person to ever live doubted, you can be sure that every single Christian has doubted at times too. Doubt and questioning God does not make him love you any less. It does not make him close the door to you. You are still today his child. You are still his work of art. You are still in his plans and part of his plans. He is still calling you today. Some need to hear this today. Because this season in particular, this coronavirus season, has brought significant times of doubt to you. And maybe, just maybe, today you're feeling a little bit like John. Jesus, are you really the one? Or should we expect another? Should we look somewhere else? Don't be dismayed by your doubts. But once again, recognise that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. They are not our thoughts today. Instead of running further from God, use your doubts to draw closer to him, surrendering your will and your ways to God. Trusting him even when you don't see it. Today, if you're doubting, the call is to do the same as John the Baptist did. Look again. Look again at what God has done in your life in the past. Remember, see, look around 
at what God is doing now. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I wonder this morning if there is anyone who is watching this, who is with us today, who knows exactly what I'm talking about this morning, who has found themselves doubting and hurting and wondering. I wonder if there's anyone watching this today who feels a million miles away from God's right now. I wonder if there's anyone watching this today who is almost feeling like, well, it's over. I can't be used anymore. There's nothing I can offer. Today, Jesus says to you, look again. See me for who I am and see how I can use you. We have this treasure in jars of clay, Paul writes. We might be broken, we might be hard pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We might be perplexed, but we're not in despair. We might feel like we're struck down, but we're not abandoned. And today we need to look at the situation through the eyes of faith. Father God, right now I pray, impart your Holy Spirit into every single home and every single household and every single person who is watching this right now. May every single person, Lord, feel a touch of your Holy Spirit right now. May faith arise in people's hearts right now. May hope arise in people's hearts right now. Lord, will you do what only you can do? Lord, we don't want to hype anything up or pretend. We want a genuine touch from you today. And I pray, Father God, that as we worship now, that you'll be speaking, that you'll be challenging, that you'll be encouraging, you'll be edifying. Lord, will you put pictures on the hearts of your people? Will you give people scriptures which are there to encourage the body? Will you prophesy, Lord God, through your people that we might hear your voice? May we be a church which builds our life on King Jesus today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.